You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word that the message will come from this morning. If you've been following along with our scripture memorization plan, you know uh, the passage that we are going to be in this week. It's going to be Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21, all the way through verse 26. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through verse 26. If you have your Bibles uh, in front of you, I encourage you to keep them open throughout the entirety of the sermon so that you can make sure that what I'm saying about this passage is actually what the passage is saying about this passage. So my friends, my family in Christ, hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest he hand you over to the judge and the judge the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Can we say thanks be to God? You can be seated. Last week, Jesus told us that he did not come to get rid of the law or to abolish the law. No, Jesus said that he has come to fulfill it. He's come to fulfill it first in his life. That all of his outward responses, all of his outward actions are a mirror image of his inward heart posture. This is what it looks like to live a blessed life. Wholehearted kingdom living is a life that flourishes both outwardly and inwardly. But who gets into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, then you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. Who are the scribes and Pharisees? It's what the, my kid's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, calls the extra super holy people. It's the people who are externally righteous, that look great on the outside. But do you see what Jesus is saying? That not even they will get into the kingdom of heaven. 
The people who think that they are in the inside are actually on the outside because all they're focusing on is external works of the law. What he's saying is your outward conformity to, to moral, religious performance is worth nothing. Is worth nothing in the kingdom of God if your inward reality contradicts it. This is the essence of spiritual hypocrisy. That your inside looks far different than the outside. And what Jesus is not just teaching and living the fulfillment of the law, but he's teaching it right here. See, over the course of the next six weeks, Jesus is going to tell us what it looks like to actually live the law, to flourish with the law. He's going to do three things over the next six weeks. He's going to first tell us what the old law says. He's going to teach us a deepening understanding of it. And then he's going to give us some practical examples. He's going to do this with adultery. He's going to do this with love and hatred. He's going to also do this with your words, oaths. Today he's doing this with the act of murder. He's telling us what is at the root of murder. He says, quite simply, it's your anger. It's your anger. And so what do you do when you become angry? How do you respond when that fiery anger burns up inside of you? How are you to think about your anger? Well, Jesus, in this teaching that you just heard read, he's first going to tell us what not to do. Second, he's going to tell us what to do instead. And third, he's going to tell us why this matters. In short, if I can sum up this whole section, he's going to tell us, don't be murderers. Be reconcilers. Don't be murderers, be reconcilers. So if you're with me, if you're following along, let's dive into that first point, what not to do. Look with me at Matthew 5, 21, that first verse. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, if you've grown up in the church or if you've spent any time on the PA turnpike, you've seen a list of 10 rules driving down the road, right? And you might recognize what Jesus just said as the sixth rule on that list. It's the, the Ten Commandments. What's the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. You shall not murder. And most peoples, they're like the Pharisees. They're like, yep, nailed it. Consider me good and righteous. I've never killed anybody, never murdered anybody. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus drops the hammer. He says, but I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. These three images that Jesus gives us it shows us that he cares about something deeper than physical murder. It shows us that he sees and he cares about your hearts. 
He cares about your anger and the words that flow out from it because they have grave consequences. He's saying the consequence for the anger that's within your heart and the words that come out is the same of murder. He's describing the high court of God, the judgment seat of God. You will be judged. You'll be handed over to the counsel of God and you will experience the hell of fire. This is why the extra super holy people cannot enter the kingdom of heaven because now no one is able to say, well, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not a murderer. Even the Pharisees don't murder. And Jesus is saying, you need a righteousness that surpasses, that exceeds their righteousness. What Jesus is teaching is the fulfillment of the command. He isn't dismissing, he isn't dismissing the sixth commandment, he's deepening the sixth commandment. Anger of man is on par with murdering men. This is when you read the words of the Bible, they begin to read your soul. They begin to read you. Now, is all anger sinful? What do you think? All anger sinful? That's like asking, is fire good or bad? Right? It depends. Right? If my kids start a bonfire in the middle of my living room, it's going to burn the house down. Fire in that context, bad. But if we start a fire in the confines of a wood-burning stove on a cold January night, we'd say that's good. It's the same with anger. For instance, we know that one of God's attributes is anger. God is an angry God. And he wouldn't be a God worth worshiping if he does not get anger, angered by evil if he did not get angered by injustices in the world. We even know that the psalmist and later the apostle Paul commands us to get angry. Look what we read in Ephesians 4. Be what? Angry and do not sin. And later we'll find Jesus being angry at the religious leaders. He'll go into the temple, overturn tables, and he'll actually do the very thing that he says not to do here. He'll call them fools. So what's, what's going on here? I think what's happening here is we're seeing the difference between righteous anger and the anger of men. You see, biblical, godly, right anger depends on what law and whose law you are voraciously defending. Godly anger depends on whose law and what law you are defending. Jesus was angry with the leaders at the temple because they were claiming to lead people towards God when in actuality they were leading people far away from God. They were hypocrites. See, good anger is rooted in the love and the law of God. Good anger is rooted in and fueled by God's definition of justice and righteousness. However, the anger that Jesus is talking about here that is guilty of hell, is summed up by his brother James. 
Look what James writes in his letter in James 1, verses 19 to 20. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to, say it with me, anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There is a type of anger, James says, that we are to be slow with, slow to emote and slow to express. And James defines it there. Did you see it? It's the anger of men. This is the anger Jesus is referring to. It's on par with murder and punishable in the same way murder is. I read an article this past week that it's the anger of man is the anger that ceases to defend the law of God and begins to defend a different law and a different person. It's the law of me. When you begin to defend yourself. This is the type of anger in the heart towards another brother that doesn't forgive. See, verse 22, that word brother there means a fellow believer. This is anger that refuses to forgive, refuses to reconcile. This is the type of anger, verse 22, that would lead you to condemn somebody to hell. To call someone a fool is to call them a non-believer. This is the type of anger that would lead you to tell somebody they are worthless. That's what it means to insult a person. And there's a reason your words are oozing this hatred. It's because out of the mouth, your heart of anger is speaking. Out of the mouth, you are slaying them with words, and you're taking lives, and you're killing relationships. And Jesus says that the one who damns somebody to hell is in danger of hell themselves. In church, I mean, most of the time, aren't we angered at other people because they've exposed some type of flaw within us? Aren't we angered with other people because they've inconvenienced our little kingdoms and little queendoms? And what happens when we get angry? Our words judge other people and they condemn other people to the outskirts of our petty little dominions. See, the anger of man, you know what the anger of man's deep desire is? Is to rid themselves of the people that make them angry, to literally kill the relationship, wishing it was dead. And Jesus says those angry thoughts and words that condemn, judge, and kill others and kill your relationships within the church, those who do that will end up judged by God in the court of God and sent off to hell. Jesus' words, not my words. This is a deepening of the sixth command without dismissing it. This is not the antithesis of the law. This is a proper exegesis, a proper explanation of the law. He's telling you what not to do, Christian. Don't murder. Don't be angry. But he doesn't just leave us there. He goes to the second point, what to do instead. Now, I've wondered, 
Have you ever tried to stop doing something or to stop thinking about something? Like if I say, stop thinking about the pink elephant. Stop thinking about the pink elephant. Stop thinking. It's hard to stop doing something unless you replace it with something else. It's difficult for me to stop a bad habit unless I replace it with a good habit. Try telling an addict to stop smoking without giving them a replacement. You know what they're going to do? They're going to find a replacement to be addicted to. Tell an angry person to stop being angry at someone. You know what they're going to do? They're going to remain an angry person and find someone or something else to be angry at or with. But Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He's a good, good teacher. He says, instead of being angry and sowing division, to sow seeds of reconciliation. That's what he says. I mean, if you follow along in verse 23, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. See, how do we go about not murdering with our anger and our hate-filled words? The first step Jesus is telling you is admittance. It's self-awareness that you are an angry person and your words have affected others. This is what Jesus is happening in Jesus' illustration. That if you remember that a brother or a sister has something against you because of something you have done to them, he's like, I want you to stop what you're doing immediately. Stop what you're doing, leave everything else behind, and go. Go and be reconciled. Now, Jesus is using one of the most extreme illustrations someone could think of. He's using the temple's altar. Now, where is the temple? In what city? Church? Jerusalem. Where is he teaching from? Galilee. You know how long it would take to walk to Galilee from the temple? A day and a half. He said, I don't care what you're doing in the middle of that temple. If you know that your brother has something against you, get to your feet and start walking. Walk back to Galilee and reconcile first. And there's this other paradox here. That the temple, this altar represents union with God. It represents fellowship, worship of God. And we in the church, we would say, but I thought worship of God was of primary importance. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. First reconcile, then come and worship. There's this beautiful paradox here. Is that when you put the word of God, when you put worship of God, fellowship with God first, we would soon discover that when Jesus put God first, he put other people before himself. This is what we must do. Later, the Apostle John will say, how can you say that you love God who you cannot see? But you cannot even love your brothers and sisters that you can see. They're right there in front of you. Or put another way, how can you say you have fellowship with God when your anger and your words have broken fellowship with other believers? That's why Jesus says, first, be reconciled. This radical Relational, it would take great sacrifice to do that. This sacrificial reconciliation, hear me, church, this is not a Christian elective. 
This is not a Christian afterthought. It is the order of the day. It is the order of now. For it displays what Christ has done for you on the cross. Our reconciliation with one another displays what God has done for us in Christ Jesus to reconcile us back to himself. And it's not because we have anything good in us. It's not because we've done anything good. It's because of his mercy and his forgiveness that he would reconcile us sinners back to himself. And if he's done this, then we should make every effort. We should drop everything. If we know that someone has something against us, we should run to them, sprint to them, and reconcile. And notice, Jesus doesn't say, if you have anything against them. Did you notice those words? He says, if they have something against you. And then he gives us another illustration. Verse 25. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge the guard and you be put in prison. What do you know about each one of these illustrations? What do you notice about them? The problem isn't out there. The problem is here. The problem is not them. The problem is me. Jesus says it's not them. It's you. They have something against you for what you said, for what you did. You are in debt. Feeling the weight. This is one of the hardest, yes, yet most life-giving tips of wisdom that I can give to folks that I do premarital counseling with or marriage counseling with. What I tell folks, whether it's the one spouse or the other, is I tell them, if you can commit to admitting that you are the problem and not only them, then your marriage will flourish. If you can admit to admitting that you are the chief of sinners, if you can commit to the fact that I need change before they ever need change, then your marriage will flourish. But imagine if only one person was committed to that. Just be an okay marriage. Imagine if no one was committed to that in the marriage. It wouldn't last long. When both are committed to it, they recognize that I'm the one in need of change more than the other. Can you imagine what marriages would look like? Can you imagine what relationships would look like, friendships would look like within the church? This is what Jesus is talking about. Where you're able to admit that I'm the one who has caused relational strain. And so where? Where do you need to admit that you need change before anyone else changes? Maybe it's in your parenting. Maybe it's with your roommates or previous roommates that you gave up on. 
Maybe it is in your marriage. Where are you saying, if only they would just change, then I wouldn't be so hateful with my words and so angry all the time? No, no, no. Where do you just need to confess that if I wouldn't have said this, our relationship would not be strained? Because here's the deal, church. You know what happens when you fail to admit your faults? When you fail to acknowledge your anger? When you fail to admit even your thoughts of anger? Yes, even you quiet folks who don't say much to anybody teem with deep anger within more than those who outwardly express it at times. You know what happens when you don't confess it? You turn into a self-righteous Pharisee. They're the problem, and I'm holy. I've done nothing wrong. I'm not in need of grace or forgiveness. They are. Sure, you don't murder. But don't you wish that others would just move or get a new job so you don't have to deal with them anymore? Sure, you don't kill people. But don't you just wish sometime that a certain few would just choose a different church? Or maybe you're considering leaving this church because of strained relationships so that you can bury the relationship six feet in the ground? I'm asking you, Jesus is asking you, how can you come to a gathering like this where you worship a God who has reconciled you not on the basis of what you do, and yet you cannot reconcile with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, blessed are not the peacekeepers and peace fakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because they are sons and daughters of God. They know what the reconciling power of God can do. And listen, we don't confess our anger and our murdered, filled words in order with the expectation that we deserve forgiveness. No, Jesus never says to expect that. We do it because we know that we have been reconciled to the Father first, and now we want to see that displayed in our lives, regardless if somebody forgives us or not. Because we know where true forgiveness is found from the Father who is in heaven through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has told us what not to do. Don't be murderers. It's telling us what to do instead. Be reconcilers. And he also tells us why this matters. Did you notice the descriptions Jesus gave, gave us on all these words? What did he say about being reconciled? He says, first. First, do this. And then he says in verse 24, come to terms. You know what that means? It means to be on good terms in your friendships, to have that restored brotherhood, sisterhood. And how is this described? Quickly. Quickly. Go quickly, fast, now. Do you hear why this matters? He's saying reconciliation on earth is an immediate priority. 
Reconciliation here on earth is an immediate priority because it reflects your eternal reality. Reconciliation here on earth is an immediate priority because it reflects your eternal reality. Who, right now, name them inside your head, who do you need to reconcile with? Maybe they're in this room. Maybe they're not in this room because they're fearful of how you might interact with them. Jesus cares so deeply for you that he's telling you the hard truths right now. The kind truths. He wants you to be aware of your anger and your words and what it does. It's killing your relationships with others. And ultimately, he says, it's going to kill your relationship with God. No other person in the entirety of the Bible talks about hell more than Jesus does. It's going to kill your relationship with God. Your anger is when he puts you in prison and you won't get out. You'll end up in hell forever. Matthew 5, 26, he says, Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Never get out. This is an eternal debt. And without Jesus, our spiritual bank account is in the black. It reads negative. We don't have two spiritual pennies to rub together, let alone one or two to pay off the final penny. And Jesus later describes this hell of fire and this prison to his disciples in Matthew 25. He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He's saying your eternal reality, your eternal reality should affect your immediate priority, reconciliation. That if you can't have reconciliation here on earth, why do you think you'll have it forever? That when we make a relationships a living hell with our anger and words about others, then Jesus is warning you, you are in great danger of living in hell forever. Are we feeling the weight of this? Jesus never said that others will recognize you as his disciples by the way you are angry with other believers about their political views. Jesus never said that others will recognize you are his disciples by the way you are angered at others by their views on vaccinations and masks. Jesus never said that they will recognize you by your judgmental and hateful words on social media towards one another. He said they'll recognize you by the way you love one another. They can't see your feelings. That's why love is not a feeling first. It's an action. We love differently, church. You know how we love? We reconcile. We admit when we're wrong. And where has our anger has broken relationships, 
we repent. We are quick to repent. And you might be sitting here right now saying, I'm guilty. I'm filled with anger and contempt against others. I'm exposed. I'm a man. I'm a woman of unclean lips. My self-righteousness in my anger has ruined relationships. To which I respond and the rest of the church responds, yeah, us too. Me too. But can I remind you of something? Do you remember the first beatitude? Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me put it another way. Blessed are those who know they are spiritually bankrupt. That's you this morning. You are in the best place to be filled. Because those who are poor in spirit are never treated like those who are self-made righteously rich in spirit. Because Jesus' disposition towards those who are unable to admit their anger, unable to admit their murder-filled words, he has one word for them, fools. But for you, who are able to admit your anger, who knows that you are depleted spiritually, I want you to think, how is Jesus looking at you right now? Do me a favor and just close your eyes. Close your eyes right now. Instead of looking down, try to look upward like the teacher is teaching up on a hill. What emotion is filling Jesus' face? For those of you who are weak, who are unable to control their anger and you know it. He's not annoyed with you. He's not frustrated with you. He's not wishing you would get your act together. No, he's not like you and me. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is rich in mercy. And these warnings are filled with grace. Why are they gracious? Because we don't deserve to be warned. And yet he warns us. And look at me. Do you know what he'll do later with your anger and with your words? He'll say, put it all on me. Put it all on me. I will take your anger and I will take your words that kill on myself. That even though you have been angry and your words have killed your relationships, I've come to be killed so that your anger and your words won't ruin and destroy your most important relationship. That is the relationship that you have with your Father in heaven. Because I've come down to drink down the dregs of God's anger and his hot cup of righteous anger on the cross so that you would not have to experience God's anger. You see, Jesus was the one who was never unrighteously angry with anybody and yet he was murdered 
as if he was one. And Jesus, he went to the cross just at the right time to settle an account with your accuser, Satan, who wants to tell you all the time that you are not worthy of God's love. But he has come to be your defender and pay all the debt, not to Satan, but to the Father who is in heaven, so that your bank account, you are no longer in debt spiritually to God because he has paid it in full, not just because he taught the fulfillment of the law and not just because he lived the fulfillment of the law, but that on the cross, he fulfilled the law by being a curse for those of us who have murdered, by being judged for those who have murdered others with our words. And even as he hung from the cross, as his accusers were hurling insults at him, they were angry with him, Jesus was still slow to anger. He says, forgive them. That's what he prays for you. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what their words are doing or their anger is doing. And because Jesus has paid our debt on the cross and through the resurrection, like I said, he doesn't just bring our spiritual bank accounts up to zero. He doesn't leave us with no spiritual riches. No, he fills us with the Holy Spirit so that we can be filled with his spirit so that our Anger no longer fills our hearts, but instead mercy and compassion does. So that our words are no longer filled with murder, but they're filled with words that give life to one another. And then instead of a self-righteousness that wants to creep up within us and never repent, his spirit leads us to be quick to repent. Because the Christian life is not a life that as you grow, you begin to repent less often. No, what happens as you grow as a Christian, you learn how to repent more quickly because you know the depths of your sin. Where do we get the power to do this, church? It's here. To see that God is no longer angry with you. He's no longer annoyed or frustrated with you. He didn't send Jesus to this earth to murder you for your anger. He sent him to this earth to murder him so that you can be reconciled to God through Christ. And so I want to leave you today with one question. Who do you need to reconcile with? Who do you need to confess to? And church, let us be a church that if we're on the receiving end of someone confessing to us, let us be a church that is slow to get angry with them and quick to forgive. Not because they deserve it, but because we have been forgiven even though we don't deserve it. Blessed are the merciful, right? Because they have received mercy. Church, this is our call. Let's not be murderers, but be reconcilers. For this is what Christ has done for us when he was murdered on that cross to reconcile us back to God. Amen? It was here.
Can I have one of those cups right there? Oop, got it. It's easy to forget that we are ambassadors of reconciliation. Most often it feels like we're ambassadors of division. But in this reminder here, this humble little reminder, it reminds us what it cost Jesus to reconcile us back to God. To remind us that he has fully absorbed God's anger. There's no more anger left for you, church. Only mercy, love, and compassion. He's given us this beautiful reminder in the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples. And he took a loaf of bread. And he broke it and gave thanks. And he said, this is my body given for you. Church, let's take and eat. In the same way, he took a cup of wine. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant that is sealed with the shedding of my blood for the forgiveness of sins. For as often as you eat of that bread and you drink of this cup, you're announcing my death until I return. My brothers and sisters, take and drink. What we just took was that unifying symbol that unites us as a church. It symbolizes Christ's death. His body was broken. We get to taste and see how good God is because he drank down the cup of God's wrath. And church, because of this union, I want to encourage you to be reconciled to one another. Come to terms quickly. The first thing you do if you have someone who has something against you, you shoot them a text saying, can we talk? Or you find them in the service. Can I take you out for lunch? I have something to confess to you. And just as quickly as you believers would go and be reconciled, those of you who are in this with us today and you might not know Jesus, you have a different settlement that needs to be made. It's with God, your Father in heaven, who wants to reconcile you to himself and invites you to come to terms quickly with him because he has paid your debt in Christ. He wants to reconcile you to himself. If you have questions about that, fine.